welcome to podcast number eight for Thanks for Your Service. I'm David Hall. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian Defence Force. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can also email us at info at In this podcast, we head to Lithgow in New South Wales to hear about the Small Arms Factory Museum and then to Victoria to learn about military history and heritage Victoria. For over 100 years, Lithgow has been home to the Small Arms Factory. Joining us on the line from Lithgow in New South Wales is Kerry Gearan, who is the Secretary of the Lithgow Small Arms Factory Museum. Kerry, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Kerry, first off, can you tell us about the Lithgow Small Arms Factory? Uh, right. The idea of an Australian arsenal first came to face about 1904. Australia, was, the states have been newly federated, and um, after the um, experiences of the Boer War, they realised that being on the other side of the world, equipment was a major problem. So um, what they did, they put out tenders for what we now call a turnkey operation, which is where a manufacturer will supply the machinery, um, do all the setting up, get everything working, and then hand that um, completed thing over to the customer. So they, they put out, four, put out um, the tenders. They got four tenders. They got three British tenders, um, BSA, Archdale, and Greedwood and Bentley, and they got one American tender from Pratt & Whitney. Now, everybody thought that one of the British tenders would get it, but they didn't. Pratt and, um, Pratt and Whitney were the ones that actually got the tender, and it was the best thing that could have happened to Australia because at that stage, England was still virtually hand-producing using um, highly skilled tradesmen and um, augmented by the machines, whereas the American idea at the time was that the machines did the work and they could be tended by virtually unskilled boys. So, um, they, they, um, as I say, Pratt & Whitney won the tender they built the factory, and that factory, it made the SMLE, or the Enfield 303 rifle. Um, it then went in in the 1920s making the Vickers machine gun. Just before the Second World War, they started making the Bren some, um, light machine gun. Um, after the Second World War, they started making um, the SLR under contract and the F1 machine carbine. And then again under contract, they started making the Ostia and the Minami. Um, they also made a number of commercial rifles and a lot of other commercial products. So when was the actual factory established? Um, the factory was actually established in 1912. The first guns went into production in 1913. They hit the army about mid-1913. So, so in terms of the weapons that the Australian soldiers were using in World War One, were actually many of them uh, sourced from the factory in Lithgow? The early ones, like um, up around Gallipoli and that, were mainly British, but the later part of the First World War certainly would have been Australian produced. And why was Lithgow chosen as the site? Uh, it was chosen, there were a number of sites put up, and Lithgow was chosen mainly because they had a very, very good progress association who included Joseph Cook, who eventually ended up one of the Prime Ministers of Australia. So they put up a very good campaign. Also, land was offered for the site, and of course, it was a railhead, there was coal available, iron ore was available, and limestone was also available. 
And one of the other reasons, we don't know how much effect this had, was that it was over the mountains and outside the range of the naval guns of the day. You've, you've mentioned weapons such as the Lee Enfield 303, the SLR, the F-88 Oztire, uh, and they were all based on existing designs. But were, were there any many home-designed or home-manufactured uh, weapons of, of Australian origin? Uh, yes, concerning the 303, um, there are a number of experimental versions. There was a shortened and lightened, which virtually looked like a normal SMLE, but very a lot shorter. There was the number six, which was a, the Australian version of the number five jungle carbine. They made 200 of those experimentally, but then ended up using the um, English one. They, they also experimented with Bakelite and laminated wood furniture. So that's something that you see now, but um, in those days it was quite revolutionary. Also, they played around with um, 7.62 versions of the 303, but they found out that the Mark III action was not quite strong enough to take the um, improved cartridge. Um, it was also in the SLR time, the L1A2, was a, which was a full auto version of the L1A1, um, that was only made here in Canada. The, um, there was also a, what people, a lot of people think is the ultimate of the of the SLR series was the X3 F2A2. Unfortunately, that never went into production. At that time, they also experimented with the, um, getting rid of or replacing the Owen machine submachine gun, and they went through a number of different submachine guns, experimental ones, the MCEM and the Kokoda, which eventually ended up with the F1 carbine that was accepted by the army. Sorry, the, the, the F1 and the Owen, they, they were they were Australian designs and they were made at the factory. Is that right? Uh, yeah, the Owen was never made at the factory. It was made by Lysarts down at Port Kembla in Newcastle. But the factory did a lot of FTR and repair work on them. And actually, the factory fitted the external safeties on all the Owens. They were going to do a Mark IV Owen, and all the equipment and, and machinery were sent to the factory. But they never went ahead with that. They ended up going with the F1 idea instead. Now, what role does the small arms factory play today, and, and has it changed its name? Today, it is now owned by Talos, which is a, um, the Australian bird part of a, a French multinational. Um, I'll go back into the history a little bit. Um, it was government-owned up until 1988, when it was corporatised. That's where a lot of government um, enterprises in Australia at that time. Uh, I, I, 1999... Transfield and Thompson CSF um, set up consortium to actually buy all the Australian um, um, factories. And um, Thompson then changed um, in 2006, oh, sorry, 2001 to Talos. And in, by 2006, Talos was the sole owner of the factory. And what role does the, does the factory play today? Uh, today, they've still got the Army contract for Australia. They're making the latest version of the Ostire, which is the EF-88 or F-90. Um, they're also doing work on the Minami, and they're also just started going back into commercial work. They're making a series of bolt-action commercial rifles um, in both centrefire and rimfire. Now, Kerry, you're the secretary of the Lithgow Small Arms Factory Museum. Can you now tell us a little bit about the museum? Uh, yes. The museum, it's um, run by trustees on behalf of the people of Lithgow. Um, what happened when the factory was privatised or um, gone out of government hands, the government gave the what they called their reference library, which was their collection of firearms, to the people of Lithgow to be on permanent display. 
um, there's a small team of dedicated volunteers um, running this and hopefully it'll go on forever from now on. When was the museum actually established? The museum was established in 1996 and had its official opening in 1998. And if, if visitors go to the museum, what do they find today? Right. The museum actually has two main themes. It has um, the theme of high-precision mass production, which takes in the factory production. We have a number of the early machines going back to 1912, which we're hoping to have on permanent display very soon. Um, we also have a lot of records of the factory and the stories of the different produ um, various production, including all the commercial production, which they, they commercial production was done during the times when they weren't making weapons, mainly to keep the place going. The, the other side is you have the technology of firearms. We have the reference library I just talked about, which has long arms, uh, submachine guns, machine guns from around the world. Uh, many of those are incredibly rare. And we also were very lucky to get the Ron Hayes handgun collection, which is a collection of 1,500 handguns from around the world. And it is that, that puts the, the museum into a world-class collection. We also have a massive archives, and we're building our library up as well. Yeah. And, and in terms of visitation, etc., what, um, what what hours are you open, and, and how many visitors? Is there, are there peak periods, or are you closed on certain periods? Or right, well, we're open um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, nine thirty till two, and weekends ten till four, and during school holidays and public holidays every day ten till four. So it, our, our visitation is going up. We looked at last year, we actually cleared 8,000 people, which is amazing for us, yeah. So, and we're hoping that, um, as I say, we've got a, a couple of things, lines in the fire, and once we get the machines on display and we can start advertising a bit more, I reckon we'll push it up around 20,000 a year. And where can people go to find out more about the, the history of the small arms factory and the actual museum itself? Right, well, the, the first point I would recommend is our website, and that's www lithgosatmuseum.org.au. We also have a Facebook page and there are also a number of publications which are available on our website. Uh, one is the um, factory, Lithgow Factory History in photographs and also the Small Arms Factory Lithgow and its People which is a two volume um, version done by um, Tony Griffith which is very, very good and really goes into a lot of detail on, on the, the history of the factory. Kerry, in terms of your background, did you work at the museum or how did you get interested and become secretary? Uh, no, I, I was um, electrical, industrial electrician by trade and I've always been interested in antique guns and collecting. Um, my passion was actually Tranter firearms, which were an early English revolver. And um, when I came to the factory, I was asked to be, be secretary and um, yeah, I just fell in love with the place, fell in love with Lithgow and went from there. What a great story. Well, thank you so much again for your time today. You can find links to the information about the museum on our website or Facebook page. Military History and Heritage Victoria, or MHHV Incorporated, was established to provide an inclusive forum for individuals and groups who are passionate about military history and heritage in Victoria. Joining us on the line from Melbourne, Victoria, is Marcus Fielding, who is the President of Military History and Heritage Victoria, Inc. Marcus, many thanks for joining us from Melbourne. Oh, my pleasure, David. Marcus, what is Military History and Heritage Victoria, Inc.? Well, uh, the Inc. part means that we're an incorporated association, so essentially uh, 
an organisation that's based down here in Victoria. Um, and that we basically try to uh, bring together the community of people, which include individual people and organisations that have some sort of interest in military history and heritage. Um, now, David, you'd be well, you know, you'd know well that uh, military history and heritage, you know, features quite significantly in Australia's national story. And so uh, back in about 2010, we decided that um, we wanted to start a new group that would um, bring together all the people that have different interests in different aspects of it. Uh, so we, from the outset, wanted to be an inclusive group. Um, so we don't uh, try to say, you know, we don't do planes or we don't do boats or we don't do this or that. Um, so we, we welcome all all stripes and, uh, and colours. Uh, and the group, uh, the Military History and Heritage piece, is essentially, um, you know, a hub for all those different individuals and organisations to come together, um, share information, uh, make connections, uh, and to generally participate in a whole range of activities that we put on. So the group started around 2010. Is there a typical profile of your members, or who, who makes up the group today? Well, at, at the moment, um, it was interesting because when we first started, we thought that um, organisational members, so that is other organisations that have some sort of military history and heritage connection would be the the primary sort of members if you like uh, and we wanted to act as a bit of as I said a hub uh, for all of those uh, really to try and you know break down the barriers and get more cross communication but since 2000 and we have about 30 of those all up um, but since then we've also had a, a, a great increase in the number of individual members so you know that's basically um, recognition of the uh, of the value uh, that we can provide for individual membership, um, which includes, you know, access to articles and information, newsletters, um, and then reduced rates at uh, the conferences and other events that we put on. You, you mentioned that organisations or other organisations form part of the membership. What, what sort of organisations are they? Um, well, let me read out a few of our um, members. Um, the 58th 32nd Infantry Battalion Association, uh, the Air Force Association, uh, the Australian Army Tank Museum, uh, the Battle of Crete and Greece Commemorative Council, the Benalla Aviation Museum, uh, the East Melbourne Historical Society, uh, Friends of the Cerberus, um, there's a number of the RSLs which you know run uh, museums of some kind. Uh, let's see, we've got the Mitchell Shire Council, which has a connection to uh, the Vietnam veterans and uh, as well as the Armoured Corps people. Uh, the Museum of HMAS Cerberus, which is one of the two uh, quite significant Navy museums. The National Vietnam Veterans Museum, which is down in Phillip Island. So a whole range of different groups and, uh, and organisations. And then in between all those is, you know, probably another 30 or 40 individuals who, you know, are either interested or they're authors or they're professionals working in you know one of these organizations or uh, researching so it's a it's a broad church david broad church in, in terms of australia's military history is the interest from the general population is it increasing or is it waning in your view we um when we first set it up um we knew that it was increasing and we knew that there was going to be probably a peak period during what's called the ANZAC centenary. So 2014 through to 2018, 
Um, we've certainly seen that increase uh, you know, across the board over the last four or five years. Um, and the, the real question is, you know, will that be maintained or will it drop off a little bit once we get past sort of 2019? It's a good question. I don't know the answer, but uh, my, my sincere hope is that, you know, that interest continues. And what sort of events uh, does the group promote and coordinate? So we do, um, from the outset, we wanted to create uh, the opportunity for people to speak. And so uh, we've, in the space of the last four or five years, we've uh, organised and convened and run about 14 conferences. And of those, two of them have been two-day conferences and all the others have been one-day conferences. Uh, and during the two-day conferences, we've we've hit some of the more contemporary um, topics. So we looked at uh, uh, we looked at Interfet, the uh, intervention into East Timor in 99-2000, and more recently, we actually did a conference on uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, which obviously involves people that are still serving, as well as people that have left and people that are um, academics looking at these events uh, from a historical perspective. So. Uh, as well as going all the way back, you know, to the Boer War, First World War, Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, etc. So we've done a good spread of um, conferences over the last few years, and then more recently we've also instigated a, a speaker program, which uh, you know we run uh, in Melbourne uh, on a quarterly basis, and that just gives um, individuals an opportunity to uh, talk about their particular topic. And we find that more often than not, those speakers are generally someone who's recently published a book on, on the subject. You, you said that both organisations and individuals uh, can join. So who, who is the membership open to? Uh, both. Um, so we have different rates of, um, of membership dues. So organisations can join. There's benefits that are specifically designed for organisations, um, the most significant of which is because a lot of them are quite small, they don't have their own web presence. Uh, so we can provide that as part of their membership fee. Uh, and then the individuals, um, you know, the, the main benefit that they see is, uh, you know, a discounted rate uh, of admission to uh, the conferences. And so we try to make sure that the uh, the value proposition for both organisations and individuals is, is, is sensible um, and, uh, you know, good value to, uh, to both of those. Uh, both of those types of members. And Marcus, you also served in the Australian Army. Tell us about uh, a little bit about your service. Yeah, so um, I joined in uh, 1983, went through Duntroon, uh, commissioned into the engineers, um, served with uh, the engineers in the Army for the next 30 years, eventually stopped doing engineering stuff and uh, started uh, getting into what I would call strategy and plans. Um, and retired in uh, from full-time service at least in 2011. Um, but I'm still uh, a member of what's called the standby reserve these days. And so I, I do project work back into defence periodically. Um, and in those sort of 28 years of service, I, uh, I did deployments to uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan back in the early 90s, uh, Haiti in the mid-90s. Uh, East Timor in 99-2000 and then across to Iraq in 2008-2009. And where can people go to find out more about uh, military history and heritage Victoria Inc? Very simple. Uh, we've got a terrific website that uh, we've really sort of put a lot of energy into over the last few years. It's 
www.mhhv.org.au and when people go and have a look at that they'll get a bit of a sense for all the different members that we have uh, but most significantly the two things that we're quite proud of on that website are a calendar of events which um, is populated by all our members as well as others that will let people know what's going on in the military history and heritage space on a day-by-day -day basis. Uh, so again, that's all trying to make people aware of what's going on and to, uh, and to get that information across the network. Uh, and the second thing that's been quite uh, pleasing is uh, a series of articles that has grown to several hundred at this stage, which you know, people contribute and uh, you know deal with a whole range of topics in military history, and uh, that is all there for people to uh, to have a look at as well. So um, the website's uh, somewhere where you can spend a bit of time uh, indulging your interest. Marcus, look, thank you very much for your time today, and also thanks for your service. Thank you, David. No worries. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. That email again is info at thanksforyourservice.net or leave a comment on our Facebook page. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, please leave a review. Finally, if you're interested in sponsorship and support of this podcast, head to our website or email us. You can also support us via Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com. Thanks for your service. Thanks for listening.